Good morning. In preparing for this message, I was asked a couple of weeks ago if I could submit a copy of my sermon to get final approval. A few days later, I received a phone call from what I had submitted. Uh, the person said to me, thank you so much for your message. I liked how you handled your subject matter. Your illustrations and the stories you told were colorful and uh, very interesting. However, I'm not so sure it's going to work out for you to preach. I said to him, well, what do you mean? You've said so many nice things. What could possibly be the problem? He said to me, well, to put it bluntly, it's your title. It has to be one of the absolute worst sermon titles I've ever heard in my whole life. Nobody in their right mind will want to come out and hear a sermon entitled The Pericopes of Paul and the Nag Hammadi Texts. <laughs> he said to me, look, here's what we'll do. Why don't you go home tonight, work on a better title? You need a title that will reach out and grab the audience by the heart. A good sermon title will persuade people to come out to hear what you have to say. He said, imagine if a bus were to stop out in front of our church in the morning and we had your sermon title on a sign out in front of our church. If the people on that bus read your sermon title, it ought to be so powerful, so compelling that they would just hop off the bus and come into the church. Well, that seemed fair to me, so I told him I'd give it my best shot. Went home and I worked on it all night long. The next morning, I emailed him my new sermon title, which read, Your Bus Has a Bomb on It. <laughs> it's just a, a first draft. I, 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 I wordsmithed it after that. On June 22, 1989, President George H.W. Bush stood in front of about 3,000 graduating seniors that year who gathered on the White House, White House lawn, and he said these words, quote, Choose a mission in life that will make a difference, end quote. I'm not really sure what President Bush had in mind when he issued that challenge, but I can imagine a handful of young people sitting out there that day thinking to themselves, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose a mission in life that's going to make a difference in this world. Chances are they didn't have a clue as to what that mission would be or how they'd implement it, but nonetheless, in their heart of hearts, they made some sort of commitment that day to pursue a mission in life that would matter, that would make a difference. Let me ask you this morning, if I were to pass out pens and paper and ask you to write out your mission in life, could you do it? Have you ever thought about a mission in life? Do you have one? Have you ever thought about uh, what's worth living for? What's worth dying for? When we talk about having a mission in life, we're not just talking about getting involved in a charitable work. We're not talking about, you know, a particular skill or talent that you might develop over the course of time. We're not just talking about what you do for a living or what you may do in your spare time. A mission is much, much bigger than that. You see, whatever you choose as your mission in life, it's ultimately going to affect everything there is about you because your mission in life is what drives you. Your mission in life is what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. It's what consumes your thoughts and inspires your actions throughout the typical work week. Your mission in life will influence 
how you invest your time, how you invest your energy and your resources. In essence, your mission in life is your very purpose for living. It's why you're here. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, God gives you a brand new mission. God gives you a brand new purpose for living, which means as a Christian, if you want your life to make a difference, if you want your life to count for God, to count for all eternity, then you're going to need to pursue and fulfill this God-given brand new mission for living. So what is it? That's what I want to focus on this morning, uh, our mission in life. Before we do, though, let's bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the occasion where we can, as your people, uh, sit humbly before your word, acknowledging our dependence on you, our need for you, acknowledging uh, your spirit, taking your word and applying it to our, our lives. So, Father, I pray for openness today that your spirit would have freedom to work in all of our hearts. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. What is our mission in life as Christians? Uh, there's an outline there in your bulletin. If you want to pull that out, you can jot down a few notes. I put down the scriptures as well that we'll be covering. I'd like to, in a broad way, suggest that our mission in life is to build the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for, to build the kingdom of God. This theme, the kingdom of God, was a major theme in Jesus' teaching. The word kingdom is used 157 times in just the New Testament alone. It was Jesus' favorite description for how God is at work in this world. In fact, you'll find that in uh, many of the parables that Jesus taught, Jesus began the parable by saying, the kingdom of God is like, and then he He'd tell a story, or he'd give an example. At the heart of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. Now, when we come to church, we sing songs like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And when we join our hearts together in prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But I have to wonder, I wonder just how many of us really understand what we're singing about really understand what we're praying for. If our whole mission in life is to build the kingdom of God, it'd probably be a good idea that we, we understand it so we can apply ourselves to it. So what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Simply put, the kingdom of God is all about bringing everything under the authority and reign of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God. Bringing everything under the reign of and authority of Jesus Christ. At the end of the book, the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus is commissioning his followers to go into all the world to make disciples uh, of all nations. But before he uttered those words, he said these words. Verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul after talking about how Jesus emptied himself, humbly coming as a servant, dying a sinner's death on the cross. But he said this, following, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's God's eternal plan and history, to bring everything under the reign and authority of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some of you at this point, you're thinking to yourself, this sounds so theological. You know, help me here. Throw me a lifeline of something practical that I can get my, my hands around. Well, here's how it practically pans out on a personal level. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you ask God for forgiveness and invite Christ into your life, at that moment, you enter into and become part of the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3? It's about how you, Nicodemus, this old Jewish teacher, how he was going to see the kingdom of God, enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you must be born again. You've got to have a spiritual rebirth, and then you can be part of the kingdom. Then you become a child of the king, subject to the, the reign and authority of the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. So that's how the kingdom begins on a personal level. The next question is, okay, how does it move uh, from nation to nation? How does it spread throughout the whole world? Well, the answer, through you and through me. Not just by pastors, not just by evangelists and missionaries, no. Plan A in God's kingdom building is through you and through me. Now, God certainly didn't have to choose to do it that way. Uh, he's God. He could have done it a thousand different ways. But that's plan A for God, to see the kingdom of God spread throughout this world through individual believers sharing the good news of Jesus. Together with Christ, we are kingdom builders. We've been commissioned by God to share this mercy and grace and love of God. We've been commissioned by God to go out into this world where there are lost sheep and to bring them to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. There is nothing bigger, nothing more significant, nothing that lasts longer than the kingdom of God. And you and I, we get to build it with Jesus. The Bible actually uses several different terms to describe what we're called to do. One of the more meaningful terms is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said this, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, most of us in the context of our everyday lives, we don't really rub shoulders with people in diplomatic circles. We had uh, incredible privilege when, when I was pastoring there in Athens. It was one of the only English-speaking international churches uh, there in Athens, and so we got sort of everybody. We had 20 to 30 nationalities. We had 20 to 30 different denominational flavors. Uh, we had refugees, and we had business leaders, and we had some diplomats. So I got to meet firsthand you know, people who were ambassadors from one country uh, and another country all coming to Greece. And we got to see, in a sense, what that entailed. What does it mean to represent your native land? Well, that's what we are. We're heavenly diplomats. You and I are divinely appointed special agents in a world that's alienated from God. And we are appealing to the lost people to have their relationship with God restored. 
That's what we're here for. The Apostle Paul knew very well his purpose for living. He echoed the same sentiment in Acts chapter 20. Paul said this, Life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, uh, telling others about the good news of God's love and grace. Wow, that kind of sums up a mission, doesn't it? Life is worth nothing unless I'm a kingdom builder. Do you realize that you know, the Apostle Paul's mission in life 2,000 years ago remains intact today in the 21st century? Nothing's changed. That's our mission in life. As a pastor, people would occasionally ask me, when do you think Jesus is going to come back you know, to establish his kingdom? you think it's going to be in a couple years? Do you think it's going to be five years, ten years? And I, was, I would always say to them, look, if I knew that, I'd write a book. And then I'd go on Oprah Winfrey, and I'd make all kinds of money, for the kingdom, of course. Uh, I didn't know when Jesus was going to come. I, I would always tell them, no one knows the day or the hour. But there are a number of telltale signs mentioned in the New Testament that are to precede his return. And there's a verse that's often overlooked, found in the book of Matthew, Matthew 24. We read these words. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Wow, that's powerful. In other words, as soon as the good news of God's love and grace has made its way around this world to every nation, you know, that's when Jesus' triumphal return is going to occur. The delay in Jesus' return is for one reason. God, in his patience and perseverance, not willing that any should perish, God wants to see the lost reached. It's for evangelism. So if you want to speed up Christ's return, well, get busy and fulfill your mission in life. You know, go out and start pointing people to Christ. Because when the last person who's to receive Christ does, well, that's it. You know, the kingdom of God will be complete and it'll set the stage for Jesus returning to establish his kingdom physically here on earth. What's God doing in this world? Well, he's busy building his kingdom. And you and I, we've been recruited by God to be a part of the process, to work alongside of him in the effort. How do we go about fulfilling our mission in more practical terms? Two ways through our lives, and through our words. That's how we go about building God's kingdom. First of all, it is absolutely imperative for you and me to tangibly demonstrate through our lives the difference that Jesus makes. It's not that we have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's not that we never encounter difficulties in life or problems in life. It's not that we ever experience failure or trials. Those are common to everyone. But having experienced God's forgiveness and the new life that Christ offers, our lives ought to reflect something of a transformation. God's supernatural love, God's supernatural joy, the peace that passes all understanding, along with our eternal hope, ought to be clearly seen by the people who interact with us on a day-to-day basis. The way in which you and I converse, how we talk, the attitudes that we convey as we're conversing, the counterculture values that we embrace, all these sorts of things should give the distinct impression 
that our lives are different because of Jesus. You see, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, we're being watched. Our bosses are watching us. Our coworkers, our, our classmates, our relatives, our friends, they've got their eye on us. They're watching us like a hawk. They're trying to see, is it true? God's at work in that person's life. And when they see Christ's life demonstrated in us, I have to believe they're one step closer to embracing the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. First Peter chapter 2, Peter said this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I don't want to get to heaven one day and have to explain to God why someone used my lifestyle, my, my bad example, as why they sort of pushed Christ away. I take this very serious. Our lives are either going to draw people to the Savior or turn people off from the Savior, pushing people farther away from Christ. I'm not in any way undermining the sovereignty of God. I fully believe in the sovereignty of God when it comes to our salvation. But there is an element where we are to be light and salt for the Lord Jesus in this world uh, to make Jesus Christ attractive. Our lives ought to be an aroma that in a positive way uh, attract people to Jesus. The second way in which we fulfill our mission in life is through our words. First, we live it, and then we open our mouths and we share it. Now, I'm sure you've heard people say before, you know, I really don't ever say anything about the Lord. I just live it through my life. And that's noble. Sounds super spiritual. But I'll, I'll have to say, I think it's wrong-headed. It's not good enough. Certainly, it's important, but it's really not enough. Jesus lived the perfect life that he could ever live, and still he had to open his mouth and tell people about the kingdom. You live a good life, great, but people might just think, you know, you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout or just a good citizen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter said this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. There's no getting around it. We have a responsibility to open our mouths and to explain to people in a gentle and respectful way the difference that Christ makes. Now, I know some of you, you're thinking, I can't do that. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not an evangelist. I get tongue-tied. You know, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not a pastor. Look, God's not asking you to be a Bible scholar. He's not asking you to be an evangelist. He's simply asking you to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that you have in your heart. Let me try to boil the gospel message down to just a couple of salient points. I mean, there's more to it, but these will give you some, some things to just hang a discussion on so that you can engage people in sharing the hope that you have uh, in Jesus. What exactly do we need to be prepared to share? First of all, tell people that Christ offers forgiveness for sin. You don't have to usually get into a discussion with people that they're sinners. They know that. They realize you know, there's things that they say, there's things that they do um, that God's probably not going to be pleased with. Christ offers forgiveness. 
He's willing to forgive everything that we've ever done wrong. He loves the world so much that he's willing to wipe clean the slate in that, in, in that person's life. He loves the world so much that he's willing to give them a clear conscience, a fresh start on life. Can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's a gift when we receive Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not too difficult, is it? To talk to people about the fact that they can, they can experience the forgiveness of God. Second, talk to people about how Christ offers fulfillment in life. Everyone, everyone has a spiritual hunger at the deepest level. Everyone. That's one of the truths that stands out from the 20th century. All of the world's totalitarian governments and humanistic philosophies combined could not extinguish that spiritual dimension that resonates in the heart and soul of every person. When the communists kicked all the missionaries out of China in 1949, there were an estimated one million Christians in a country of a billion people. And they thought the light just went out. After over 60 years of brutal persecution, after over 60 years of atheistic indoctrination, there are somewhere between 50 and 100 million Christians right now in China. Some estimate even higher numbers. Everyone has a deep spiritual hunger within their heart. Your boss has a spiritual hunger. <laughs> you may think, you don't know my boss. I Trust me, he's got a spiritual hunger. Your neighbor has a spiritual hunger. Your coworkers, they hunger for God. Now, they may not verbalize it. They may be repressing it, rejecting it, but it's there. That's how God made us. That's how God has wired us. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy that spiritual hunger. Now, people have embarked on all kinds of uh, attempts to fill that void, that void that only Jesus can fill. And people will try to convince themselves, you know, if they just make enough money, if they rise to a certain level of prominence and, and obtain a certain amount of power, they run after pleasure, they stockpile their possessions, eventually they think, you know, they'll reach nirvana. They'll reach that point where they're satisfied and they're content and they're fulfilled. It's not going to happen because nothing can fill that spiritual dimension in a person's life than Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said this, I've come that, that you might have life, true life, abundant life, you know, a rich and whole life. This mission may seem just overwhelming for some. You think, <laughs> okay, uh, you, you got me this far. I'm going to be committed to have a mission of building God's kingdom, but where do I even start? Where do I begin? How do we fulfill this mission in life? Last words Jesus said before ascending into heaven, Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Notice, Jesus spoke those words to the people living there. He, they were in Jerusalem when he said these words. In essence, he was telling them, start at home. It's a good place to start. You know, start with the people closest to you, your family, your relatives, your classmates that sit around you uh, during the day, your neighbors. Then maybe you can go to Judea and Samaria. And perhaps some of you one day 
God's going to call you to a remote part of this world. The point is this. Don't become flustered at the onset. Some people, they're paralyzed, and they can't seem to even take one step forward. Don't let that happen. You're not responsible for all the world. You're only responsible for your world, the sphere of influence that you have. You may be the only Christian in your apartment complex. What an opportunity. You may be the only Christian in your family. You may be the only Christian sitting in your class at school. If you don't take the initiative and share the good news of Jesus Christ, who do you think is going to do it? Who do you think God expects to do it? Who do you think God's going to hold accountable to do it? You and I are Christ's ambassadors wherever we are. Fulfill your mission. You know? Make it your primary business, your primary profession to build the kingdom of God. Here's a simple factoid. Human kingdoms, human governments, they rise and fall all the time. <laughs> if you've paid attention to the news in any capacity over the last number of years, you see nations born and nations end. Governments are toppled left and right. I'd hate to be a map maker. You know, every couple of months you're erasing boundaries and renaming countries. You'd never feel like you're done. The kingdom of God, it's going to last forever and ever. And the moment you sign on to it, you've signed on to the greatest cause this world has ever known. Uh, you've embraced a mission in life that's big enough for life. And not only for this world, but the next. A few more words, and with that I'll close. I go back in the Old Testament. When God said to Moses, I want to use you, Moses looked back at God and said, Who? Me? When God said to Jonah, I want to use you, Jonah's like, not me. Exit, stage left. When God said to Habakkuk, I want to use you, Habakkuk's like, why me? When God said to Isaiah, I want to use you, Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm telling you this morning, God wants to use you. What's going to be your response? Who, me? Not me. Why me? Here I am, Lord. Send me. Three quick practical suggestions. First of all, commit yourself to pray for specific people. You know your sphere of influence. You know the people around you who need Christ. Put their name down and pray regularly for them. That God would be at work in their life. That you'd be given an opportunity to, to naturally converse with them the good news of Jesus. Second, prepare yourself. Uh, join an evangelism class. Buy a book on how to share your faith. If you don't feel like you're really prepared to open your mouth for Christ, well, then get prepared. I'm sure there are gifted individuals here in this congregation who could uh, mentor you in how to best share your faith. And third, take the initiative and invite people to a Bible study, a community group, a Sunday morning service. Uh, anybody can do this. You can be a one-day-old Christian, and you can do this. You can invite someone to church. George Gallup did a survey in the United States some years ago. He discovered that there were 61 million people in America without a church home. And of that 61 million people, over 50% said this, I'd go, I'm just waiting for someone to invite me. 
If you're a Christian, you're going to be in heaven because someone cared enough about you to take time to share the good news of Jesus so that you could respond to the gospel. Who have you told? Anybody? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be a part of your kingdom, to be kingdom builders along with Jesus. Forgive us for allowing the things of this world to distract us into what really matters in this life. Use us. Send us. Make our lives count for all eternity. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.